1: It's January 26, 2017. Sally Yates is the acting attorney general. She's leading the Justice Department until Jeff Sessions is confirmed by the Senate. Yates has just learned some alarming news. The new national security adviser, Michael Flynn, has lied to federal agents. He's told them that he hadn't discussed sanctions in a call with Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak. But he had. And it looks like Flynn has lied to the vice president about it as well. Yates calls White House counsel Don McGahn. She says they have to meet right away. Yates knows that the FBI has the tape to prove Flynn lied, which is a crime. But right now, there's an even bigger problem. The Russians probably have the tape too. We were concerned that the American people had been
2: misled about the underlying conduct and what General Flynn had done. And additionally, that we weren't the only ones that knew all of this, that the Russians also knew about what General Flynn had done, and the Russians also knew that General Flynn had misled the vice president and others. Because in the media accounts, it was clear from the vice president and others that they were repeating what General Flynn had told them, and that this was a problem, because Not only did we believe that the Russians knew this, but that they likely had proof of this information. And that created a compromise situation, a situation where the national security advisor essentially could be blackmailed by the Russians.
1: Yates is telling this to the White House for a reason, so they can do something about it. But days pass, and then a week, and then another. And Michael Flynn is still the national security advisor. This is The Report. Episode 9, Honest Loyalty. To obstruct justice, there has to be an investigation, and you need to do something to impede that investigation. In the last episode, we outlined why the incoming president might have wanted to prevent people from looking into a whole lot of issues around Russia, and how the clouds of multiple investigations began to gather. This episode follows the report through two linked stories. The first is the story of the investigation into Michael Flynn and his lies to investigators. The second is the actions President Trump took to stymie the Flynn investigation, including two interactions between Trump and then-FBI director James Comey that become focal points of the obstruction inquiry. The beginnings of this story, you'll recall, start back during the transition, Remember that December phone call Flynn has with the Russian ambassador on the day the Obama administration announced sanctions? The Trump administration
2: faces a high-level shakeup after less than a month in office. The president's national security adviser, General Michael Flynn, suddenly resigned late last night. This follows questions about his conversations with Russian officials during the presidential transition.
3: Donald Trump's team has confirmed that his future national security advisor spoke on the phone to Russia's U.S. ambassador on the day sanctions were imposed against Moscow. Flynn, in a just-released interview, insisted his communications with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, broke no laws.
1: Here's Shane Harris of the Washington Post.
4: So, that story begins actually in the days before, about, you know about a month or so before Donald Trump is inaugurated, where Flynn, as part of the transition, is kind of in charge of efforts to get in touch with the Russian government and start laying the groundwork for future relations. In the days right before the Christmas holiday, it was sort of in this period where members of the transition team were going off their various vacations. People were in transit, senior members, some of them were at Mar-a-Lago. Flynn has a cell phone conversation with the Russian ambassador to the United States, Sergei Kislyak. And this is in the time when the Obama administration is going to levy new sanctions against Russia for its interference in the 2016 election. And essentially what Mike Flynn says is the sanctions are going to happen. Don't escalate this. Don't do a tit for tat. Don't come back at the United States. Wait until we get into power and we'll work this out. And in fact, the Russians do hold off. They don't retaliate in any kind of way with sanctions or any other measures. Donald Trump tweets about this and says, always knew Vladimir Putin was a smart guy.
1: But inside the US intelligence agencies, people are puzzled when the Russians don't respond. Here's how the Mueller report describes it. It's being read, as always, by Benjamin Wittes.
5: Members of the intelligence community were surprised by Russia's decision not to retaliate in response to the sanctions. When analyzing Russia's response, they became aware of Flynn's discussions of sanctions with Kislyak. Previously, the FBI had opened an investigation of Flynn based on his relationship with the Russian government. Flynn's contacts with Kislyak became a key component of that investigation.
1: Also with The Washington Post is Greg Miller.
3: When the Obama administration announces that it's going to kick out a bunch of Russian spies and usher in these economic sanctions against Moscow, everybody is bracing for retaliation. They are bracing for the counter moves by Vladimir Putin, which always come. The entire history of the Cold War is tit for tat. It is, you do something to us, we're going to do something in equal measure to you. And it doesn't happen. So they're just so dumbstruck by this. How is it that we we levy these sanctions against Russia and Putin responds with an olive branch? It didn't make any sense. And when something like that doesn't make sense, White Houses want to know what's really happening. That's what leads them to s- discover the transcript, the the intercept of this call between Flynn and Kislyak.
1: The FBI is already looking at Flynn, and now they discover a call in which Flynn appears to be subverting the Obama administration's foreign policy before the Trump administration takes office. So the FBI decides to ask Flynn some questions about that conversation with Kislyak. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, still in New York, is getting ready to take over, and he's having his first major intelligence briefing.
5: On January 6th, 2017, intelligence officials briefed President-elect Trump and the incoming administration on the intelligence community's assessment that Russia had interfered in the 2016 presidential election.
1: As we covered in the prior episode, the intelligence community leadership goes to Trump Tower to brief the president-elect on Russian election interference. Among those officials are the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, and FBI Director Comey. It's the first time Comey and Trump ever meet face to face. Here's Comey describing that meeting.
6: I was there at Trump Tower January the 6th of 2017, so when President Trump was President-elect Trump, at President Obama's direction, with the leaders of the CIA, the NSA, and the Director of National Intelligence to brief the President-elect and his new team on what the intelligence community, US intelligence community's conclusion was about Russian interference in the election and to tell him that they they had an extensive campaign to damage the American democracy, to hurt Hillary Clinton, and to help Donald Trump.
1: Comey has also said that he was surprised by the Trump team's reaction to the news.
6: Then the conversation, to my surprise, moved into a PR conversation about how the Trump team would position this and what they could say about this. That's just not done. No one, to my recollection, asked, so what's coming next from the Russians? How might we stop it? What's the future look like? There was none of that. It was all, what can we say about what they did and how it affects the election that we just had?
1: Even under the best of circumstances, this would be an uncomfortable meeting. After all, the intelligence community believes that Russia has interfered in the election on Trump's behalf, something that Trump keeps publicly denying. But it's even more uncomfortable, because at least some of the intelligence officials in that room know that people associated with the Trump campaign, George Papadopoulos, Paul Manafort, Flynn, and Carter Page, are already under FBI scrutiny. And it gets worse. Those officials also know about the Steele dossier. And now Comey has to tell Trump about it.
5: When the briefing concluded, Comey spoke with the president-elect privately to brief him on unverified, personally-sensitive allegations compiled by Steele. I'm about to
6: meet with a person who doesn't know me, Has just been elected president of the United States. From my watching him during the campaign, could be volatile. And I'm about to talk to him about allegations that he was involved with prostitutes in Moscow and that the Russians taped it.
5: Comey then briefed the president-elect on the sensitive material in the Steele reporting. Comey recalled that the president-elect seemed defensive, so Comey decided to assure him that the FBI was not investigating him personally. Comey recalled that he did not want the president-elect to think of the conversation as a J. Edgar Hoover move.
6: But it was information that the FBI had, from a reliable, credible source, that potentially could be used to exert influence over the new president. I didn't know whether it was true, I didn't really care, but we wanted him to know this was out there for two reasons. First, we didn't want to be keeping secrets from the incoming president, especially about something that we thought the media was about to reveal. And we wanted to do what we call a defensive briefing, which is let the person know whether this is true or not, it's out there and often that will diffuse the ability of an adversary to use that information. And his reaction was strongly defensive, which is reasonable.
1: Comey doesn't go into all the details.
6: I did not go into the business about um, people peeing on each other, and he interrupted, started talking about it, you know, do I look like a guy who needs hookers? I didn't answer that, and I just moved on and explained, sir, I'm not saying that we credit this, not saying we believe it, we just thought it very important that you know
1: Comey wants to reassure the president that he wasn't accusing him of having done this. The briefing is for defensive purposes. It's to protect the president.
6: I was keen, as I saw the conversation spinning off in a bad direction, to say something to him that was true, that we were not investigating him personally. And that, I, I hope, went some way to blunt an assumption that I was up to no good.
1: Only three days later, on January 10th, CNN reports that Comey has briefed Trump on the Steele dossier. That same day, BuzzFeed News publishes the dossier itself, setting off a firestorm. When
2: BuzzFeed published a dossier of alleged Russian dirt on Donald Trump and his campaign.
1: Donald Trump has denied claims that he has been compromised by Russia.
0: Tonight, we have more on the ongoing saga of the Trump dossier.
1: Phil, let's
2: talk about the dossier.
5: The next day, President-elect Trump expressed concern to intelligence community leaders about the information reaching the press and asked them to make public statements refuting the allegations in the Steele reports.
1: A lot is happening. Comey and intelligence officials are briefing the president on stuff that's very personal and damaging even as the FBI and intelligence agencies are learning new information about the scope and scale of Russia's involvement in the election. In the following weeks, three congressional committees will open investigations. And it's during this frantic period ahead of Trump's inauguration that the FBI uncovers a critical piece of information about Michael Flynn. And the press finds out about it, too. On January 12th, Only two days after the BuzzFeed story about the Steele dossier, The Washington Post reports that Flynn and Kislyak had spoken on the phone on the same day the Obama administration announced sanctions. Here's Greg Miller again.
3: David Ignatius, a columnist at The Post, writes about that conversation and sa- basically says, you know, the, the the incoming Trump team owes us some answers. What did Flynn say on that call? It's a question that he almost buries toward the bottom of that column. But it forces the White House, the incoming Trump administration, out into the open on this question, forces them to address it publicly. They start lying about it. They start saying, oh, it was just a holiday greetings between Flynn and the Russian ambassador. They were just an exchange of pleasantries and talking about setting up future meetings.
5: When Priebus and other incoming administration officials questioned Flynn internally about the Washington Post column, Flynn maintained that he had not discussed sanctions with Kislyak. Flynn repeated that claim to Vice President-elect Michael Pence and to incoming press secretary Sean Spicer. In subsequent media interviews in mid-January, Pence, Priebus, and Spicer denied that Flynn and Kislyak had discussed sanctions, basing those denials on their conversations with Flynn.
1: The incoming administration is lying. And while the American public doesn't know that yet, there are people in the government who do.
3: When that happens, there are a small group, but a significant group of officials in Washington who know that's not true. Um, These are people who might, you know, who are not inclined to tell (laughs) reporters like me anything about classified intelligence issues, um, let alone the contents of an intercept like this. But when an incoming administration a vice president and a White House spokesperson are flat lying about something to the American public, and there are people who know that's a lie, the, their motivation starts to tick up to, to get that information out, as you can imagine.
1: The Trump administration hasn't even taken office yet. There are already an onslaught of questions about what the Trump campaign knew about Russian interference in the U.S. election. And now, the media is demanding answers as to whether the Trump team had compromised U.S. foreign policy during the transition. In the midst of all of this, Donald Trump is officially sworn in as President of the United States.
5: And will, to the best of my ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and
3: defend Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President.
1: And it turns out that the press aren't the only ones with questions about that call. The FBI wants to know more as well. Within a week of the inauguration, FBI agents interview Flynn at the White House. And during that interview, Flynn lies to them just as he has to White House officials.
5: On January 24, 2017, Flynn agreed to be interviewed by agents from the FBI. During the interview, which took place at the White House, Flynn falsely stated that he did not ask Kislyak to refrain from escalating the situation in response to the sanctions on Russia imposed by the Obama administration. Flynn also falsely stated that he did not remember a follow-up conversation in which Kislyak stated that Russia had chosen to moderate its response to those sanctions as a result of Flynn's request.
1: Here's Shane Harris.
4: Fast forward, they're now in office, and it's not long after Michael Flynn is installed as the National Security Advisor that he gets a visit from the FBI. They come and they essentially ask him about the conversation with Kislyak, which— You would think would have been a tip-off to Mike Flynn that they knew about the conversation with Kislyak. So you might want to honestly recount what the conversation with Kislyak was. Uh, And ultimately, uh, he does not say that they were talking about sanctions. He says they were talking about other things and he denies that there was any conversation around sanctions. It becomes immediately clear to people in the Justice Department at very, very senior levels that Mike Flynn is not telling the truth to the FBI.
1: Back at Maine Justice, Yates learns that Flynn has lied in his interview, and there's a tape to prove it. Lying to federal investigators is a crime. That means that the National Security Advisor, one of the most sensitive and trusted positions in the entire United States government, is in a position to be compromised by Russia.
2: Every time this lie was repeated, and the misrepresentations were getting more and more specific as, as they were coming out, every time that happened... It increased the compromise. And you know, to state the obvious, you don't
1: want your national security advisor compromised with the Russians. She decides she needs to tell the White House. And right away. Yates contacts McGahn and tells him she needs to speak with him urgently about a sensitive matter that needs to be discussed in person. Later that day, Yates and a senior national security official at the Justice Department go to the White House. The two enter the secured office of the White House counsel, where Don McGahn and another White House attorney are waiting. So I told
2: them again that there were a number of press accounts of statements that had been made by the vice president and other high-ranking White House officials about General Flynn's conduct that we knew to be untrue. And we told them how we knew that this, how we had this information, how we had acquired it, and how we knew that it was untrue. And we walked the White House counsel, who also had an associate there with him, through General Flynn's underlying conduct, the contents of which I obviously cannot go
1: through with you today because it's classified. Yates does tell McGahn that Flynn has been interviewed by the FBI, but she won't say whether or not he's lied. After the meeting, McGahn notifies President Trump.
5: That afternoon, McGahn notified the president that Yates had come to the White House to discuss concerns about Flynn. McGahn described what Yates had told him, and the president asked him to repeat it, so he did. McGahn recalled that when he described the FBI's interview of Flynn, he said that Flynn did not disclose having discussed sanctions with Kislyak, but that there may not have been a clear violation of the law against making false statements. The president asked about that law, and McGahn explained it to him. The president instructed McGahn to work with Priebus and Bannon to look into the matter further and directed that they not discuss it with any other official.
1: The president seems to be flustered by the news he's received about Flynn, and he starts asking questions about the FBI director.
5: That evening, Trump dined with several senior advisors and asked the group what they thought about James Comey. According to Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats, one of the attendees of the dinner, no one advocated firing Comey, but the consensus was not positive. Coats advocated for Comey as FBI director and encouraged the president to meet Comey face-to-face and spend time with him before making any decision.
1: The next day, January 27th, McGahn asks Yates to return to the White House.
2: One of the issues that Mr. McGann raised with me in this second meeting, that again was on the 27th, the day after the first meeting, was his concern, because we had told him before that we were giving him this information so that they could take action. And he said that they were concerned that taking action might interfere with the FBI investigation. And we told him, both the senior career official and I, that he should not be concerned with it, that General Flynn had been interviewed, that their action would not interfere with any investigation. And in fact, I remember specifically saying, you know, it wouldn't really be fair of us
1: to tell you this and then expect you to sit on your hands. In response to Yates' warning, the White House does nothing. Here's Senator Diane Feinstein asking Gates about what happened next.
2: Uh, Lieutenant General Flynn remained National Security Advisor for 18 days after you raised the Justice Department's concern In your view, during those 18 days, did the risk that Flynn had been or could be compromised diminish at all? You know, I don't know that I'm in a position to really have an answer for that. I know that we were really concerned about the compromise here, and that was the reason why we were encouraging them to act. You know, I don't know what steps they
1: may have taken,
2: if any, during that 18 days to minimize any risk.
1: This is all happening in the very first week of Trump's presidency. Flynn lies to the FBI, Yates warns the White House of his potential compromise, and the president is informed of the issue concerning Flynn. That night, he solicits his advisor's opinions of Comey. And one day later, he invites the FBI director to the White House for dinner. It's at this dinner that Trump requests what Comey understands to be a pledge of personal loyalty. It's the first red flag that the president may be seeking to interfere in the Russia investigation.
6: My assistant says there's a call coming from the White House. It's the president asking me if I want to come over for dinner that night. President of the United States calling to ask me to a dinner, and I was assuming it was a group dinner.
1: But Comey was wrong. The dinner was just him and the president. Once the meal is served, the president proceeds to ask Comey whether he wants to remain FBI director.
6: He said, you know, a lot of people would want to be FBI director. and Given all you've gone through, I would understand if you want to walk away. But it would look like you'd done something wrong if you did that. But I figured I should meet with you and, and see what you want to do.
1: And then, the president of the United States tries to extract a pledge of personal loyalty from the sitting FBI director.
6: The purpose of the dinner was for him to extract from me a promise of loyalty. He said, I expect loyalty, I need loyalty. And I just stared at him and had this little narrative with myself inside, saying, don't you move, don't you dare move, don't even blink.
1: Comey doesn't answer, and Trump moves on. But later in the evening, the president asks again.
6: By the second time he came back to it, I had my wits about me and had a better answer. He said again, I need loyalty, And I said, you will always get honesty from me. And he paused. And then he said, honest loyalty, as if he was proposing some compromise or a deal. And I paused and said, you'll get that from me.
1: Before the night is over, Trump, unprompted, brings up the allegation on the Steele dossier that he'd been filmed consorting with prostitutes in a Moscow hotel room.
6: Says he may want me to investigate it to prove that it didn't happen. And then he says uh, something that distracted me because he said, you know, if there's even a 1% chance my wife thinks that's true, that's terrible. And I remember thinking, how could your wife think there's a 1% chance you were with prostitutes peeing on each other in Moscow? I'm a flawed human being, but there's literally zero chance that my wife would think that was true. I said to him, sir, when he started talking about it, I may order you to investigate that. I said, sir, that's up to you, but you'd want to be careful about that because it might create a narrative that we're investigating you personally. And second, it's very difficult to prove something didn't happen.
1: When the evening ends, Comey immediately writes a memo recording everything that had happened. The president insists that Comey is lying about their meeting, but Mueller is clear. He regards Comey's account as credible.
5: Substantial evidence corroborates Comey's account of the dinner invitation and the request for loyalty. The president's daily diary confirms that the president extended a dinner invitation to Comey on January 27th. With respect to the substance of the dinner conversation, Comey documented the president's request for loyalty in a memorandum he began drafting the night of the dinner. Senior FBI officials recall that Comey told them about the loyalty request shortly after the dinner occurred. And Comey described the request while under oath in congressional proceedings and in a subsequent interview with investigators subject to penalties for lying. After leaving the White House, Comey called Deputy Director of the FBI Andrew McCabe, summarized what he and the President had discussed, including the President's request for loyalty, and expressed shock over the President's request. Comey also convened a meeting with his senior leadership team to discuss what the president had asked of him during the dinner and whether he had handled the request for loyalty properly. Comey's memory of the details of the dinner, including that the president requested loyalty, has remained consistent throughout.
1: Yates has warned the White House that Flynn has lied about his call with Kislyak. And while Trump has pressed the FBI director for loyalty, He hasn't done anything with respect to Flynn, who's still the national security advisor. But questions continue to swirl about that call. And then, in early February, the Washington Post finally breaks the story. Here's Greg Miller.
3: We learn that, in fact, Flynn did discuss sanctions with Kislyak, despite all the White House denials. That he did signal the Russians to not overreact to these sanctions, this sets in motion a, a really nerve wracking series of events for us at The Post. One of my colleagues, Karen DeYoung, has a previously scheduled interview with Flynn as we're, fi- you know, we're putting the final touches on this story to about to tell the world that he's a liar and that he did talk sanctions with Russia. We ask her, can you wait until the end of your interview and then ask a couple questions for us? And she does. She tells him, basically, the Post is, is close to publishing that you did discuss sanctions with Russia. And he looks at her, and he puts this stern look on his face and points his finger and says, no, that did not happen. And he repeats it three times. No, no, no. I call the National Security Council spokesperson and say, look, we're, we're moving ahead. We're going to use Flynn's denial. We're going to report that he said no, that he didn't do this. But nevertheless, we're going to publish this story. He says, sit tight. Hold on. We wonder if you guys would let us withdraw his denial and substitute it with he can't recall with certainty whether sanctions come up. And we're like, "Okay." in my my mind when I'm hearing this, I'm like, this is done. It's over. We're golden.
1: The Post reports the story on February 9th, 2017.
3: So that's the beginning of the end for Flynn. The story posts later that day. Uh, It's an earthquake that sets in motion inside the White House. We learn later a real scramble. The vice president, basically, this is the moment in which he learns that he's been lied to by the national security advisor. There's a lot of consternation at the Justice Department. There's a lot of things happening behind the scenes here that aren't quite visible to the public. But three days later, Flynn is forced out of office inevitably.
1: Flynn resigns on February 13th. He may be out at the White House, but his legal troubles aren't over. Remember, he's lied to the FBI, which is a crime. And there's an existing investigation into him on other matters. And so the president gets involved once again. The day after Flynn resigns, Trump has a conversation with Comey in the Oval Office that represents the first major episode of possible obstruction in the Mueller report. That day is February 14th, 2017, Valentine's Day. The president has spent lunch with former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie.
5: According to Christie, at one point during the lunch, the president said, Now that we fired Flynn, the Russia thing is over. Christie laughed and responded, No way. He said, This Russia thing is far from over. We'll be here on Valentine's Day 2018 talking about this. The president said, Flynn met with the Russians. That was the problem. I fired Flynn. It's over. Christie recalled responding that based on his experience, both as a prosecutor and as someone who had been investigated, firing Flynn would not end the investigation. Christie also told the president that he would never be able to get rid of Flynn, like gum on the bottom of your shoe. Toward the end of the lunch, the president brought up Comey and asked if Christie was still friendly with him. Christie said he was. The president told Christie to call Comey and tell him that the president likes him and tell him he's part of the team. At the end of the lunch, the president repeated his request that Christie reach out to Comey. Christie had no intention of complying with the president's request that he contact Comey. He did not want to put Comey in the position of having to receive such a phone call.
1: Later that afternoon, Comey comes to the Oval Office for a counterterrorism briefing. And when the meeting concludes, Trump tells the FBI director to stay behind.
6: We were there for a briefing, which is a very good idea, to give the new president an understanding of the terrorism threat in the United States, which is the FBI's primary responsibility.
1: When Trump asks Comey to stay behind, alone, others in the room hesitate.
6: Well, I know the attorney general didn't wanna leave. Clearly, his body language, at least to my mind, said he didn't wanna leave. And then the president said, thanks, Jeff. I just wanna talk to Jim, thank you. I didn't know what was gonna happen next, but I knew that whatever it was, it was really, really important that I remember everything that was said. It's so unusual that, first of all, it's unusual for the FBI director and the president to be alone at all, but to kick out the vice president of the United States and the attorney general, who I work for, so you could talk to me alone, Something was up.
1: Comey knows there's a reason Trump has cleared the room. He wants to talk about something that he doesn't want the others to hear. And what Trump wants to talk about is Michael Flynn.
6: And that's when he asked me, said he hopes I can let it go. He's asking me to drop a criminal investigation of his now former National Security Advisor. I took it as a direction. His words were, though, I hope you can let it go. I took the expression of hope as, this is what I want you to do.
1: Comey leaves. And as he had following that briefing in Trump Tower, and after the loyalty dinner, he prepares a contemporaneous memo of the conversation.
5: Shortly after meeting with the president, Comey began drafting a memorandum documenting their conversation. Comey also met with his senior leadership team to discuss the president's request, and they agreed not to inform FBI officials working on the Flynn case of the president's statements so the officials would not be influenced by the request. Comey also asked for a meeting with Sessions and requested that Sessions not leave Comey alone with the president again.
1: Mueller devotes significant attention to Trump's exchange with Comey in the Oval Office. This episode is the first incident that Mueller evaluates as possible obstruction of justice. And for each incident he evaluates, Mueller looks at three key elements of obstruction in general. Former U.S. attorney Preet Barrara explains.
0: And so with respect to each set of incidents uh, or each narrative, he sets forth you know, what evidence there is in support of each of the three elements. Uh, those elements being, first, that there is an obstructive act, that there's something that someone did that could constitute, that, that could constitute an obstructive act. Second, uh, is there a nexus to a proceeding? For example, if you engage in an act, but it has nothing to do with a grand jury proceeding or a special counsel investigation, or you don't know about those things being in play, then there may not be a nexus to the to the proceeding. And then third, most importantly, in some instances, and most difficult to prove, uh, you know, generally in these kinds of cases, is corrupt intent. So you could have an act where you did something like fire the, the FBI director or instruct someone to tell Jeff Sessions to unrecuse himself. It can also have a clear connection to a proceeding, but. If it was done uh, accidentally or with some intent other than to obstruct the proceeding and it was not done corruptly, then you also don't have an obstruction of justice case. I think that's the general process by which the special counsel's office laid out the facts, specifically geared to the three elements you have to prove.
1: This analysis can feel frustrating because Mueller never explicitly says whether he thinks the facts prove the specific elements beyond a reasonable doubt. That means he never directly says whether or not the president has obstructed justice. I
0: think what they try to do uh, in, in a lot of different contexts is to lay out what the evidence is in support of the proposition that the president did something innocently, and then lay out other evidence in support of the opposite proposition that it was done corruptly and let you know that documentation speak for itself. So if there's a paragraph on the innocent explanation and what supports it and then there's like 11 paragraphs, on, on the guilty explanation of what supports it, then I think people can make their own conclusions.
1: The obstructive act in this case would be the president's request to Comey to drop the Flynn investigation. Mueller spends some time here reemphasizing that Comey's version of the story is the one he believes.
0: And then when you're trying to evaluate which witness recollections you credit the most, the credibility of that witness comes into play. A lot of criticism of Jim Comey and a lot of things, but I'm not aware of a credible allegation of Jim Comey telling a falsehood. On top of that, you know, in some detail, he, he wrote out things at the same time that he had these conversations. And I think in, in, in one or more instances also had contemporaneous conversations with other people.
1: It's not hard for Mueller to establish that the request took place. There's plenty of evidence to support that. And it's true that later on he'll have to tackle tougher questions, like whether the president, who runs the executive branch, is actually allowed to make such a request. We'll deal with that question in coming episodes. Here, however, Mueller faces a more technical obstacle with the evidence. The president doesn't technically direct Comey to end the investigation. He just asks him to. Is that an obstructive act? Here's Mueller's answer.
5: While the president said he hoped Comey could let Flynn go, rather than affirmatively directing him to do so, The circumstances of the conversation show that the president was asking Comey to close the FBI's investigation into Flynn. First, the president arranged the meeting with Comey so that they would be alone and purposely excluded the attorney general, which suggests that the president meant to make a request to Comey that he did not want anyone else to hear. Second, because the president is the head of the executive branch, when he says that he hopes a subordinate will do something, it is reasonable to expect the subordinate will do what the president wants. Indeed, the president repeated a version of Let This Go three times, and Comey testified that he understood the president's statements as a directive, which is corroborated by the way Comey reacted at the time.
1: Another question here is whether there's a proceeding or investigation to obstruct. This question is actually sort of complicated at this stage.
5: To establish a nexus to a proceeding, it would be necessary to show that the president could reasonably foresee and actually contemplated that the investigation of Flynn was likely to lead to a grand jury investigation or prosecution. At the time of the president's one-on-one meeting with Comey, no grand jury subpoenas had been issued as part of the FBI's investigation into Flynn. But Flynn's lies to the FBI violated federal criminal law and resulted in Flynn's prosecution. By the time the president spoke to Comey about Flynn... DOJ officials had informed McGahn, who informed the president that Flynn's statements to senior White House officials about his contacts with Kislyak were not true, and that Flynn had told the same version of events to the FBI. In addition, the president's instruction to the FBI director to let Flynn go suggests his awareness that Flynn could face criminal exposure for his conduct and was at risk of
0: prosecution.
1: And then there's the question of intent. Why does he do it?
0: A lot of times there's not one reason someone does what they do, right? Someone could choose to take a job um, for the money. They can also choose to take that same job not only for the money, but also because it might be a good learning experience. Uh, It might involve travel that would be interesting to the person, or it might be gratifying work. Often people engage in conduct that has multiple motivations. Depending on what law is being applied, uh, you know, the bribery, statute, or obstruction, There are different levels of proof required um, to show, was it the only reason why someone did a thing, uh, or was it one of the reasons that someone did a thing?
1: Mueller suggests that the context of the meeting, coming shortly after the president has asked Comey for loyalty, and after he's told everyone else to leave the room, does indicate malign intent.
5: The president's decision to meet one-on-one with Comey contravened the advice of the White House counsel that the president should not communicate directly with the Department of Justice to avoid any appearance of interfering in law enforcement activities. And the president later denied that he cleared the room and asked Comey to let Flynn go, a denial that would have been unnecessary if he believed his request was a proper exercise of prosecutorial discretion.
1: And Mueller does conclude that Trump had a stake in the Flynn investigation.
5: Evidence does establish that the president connected the Flynn investigation to the FBI's broader Russia investigation and that he believed, as he told Christie, that terminating Flynn would end the whole Russia thing. After Christie pushed back, telling the president that firing Flynn would not end the Russia investigation, the president asked Christie to reach out to Comey and convey that the president liked him and that he was part of the team. That afternoon, the president cleared the room and asked Comey to let Flynn go.
1: But Mueller acknowledges that Trump may have been partially motivated by genuine sympathy for Flynn.
5: In public statements, the president repeatedly described Flynn as a good person who had been harmed by the Russia investigation, and the president directed advisers to reach out to Flynn to tell him the president cared about him and felt bad for him. At the same time, multiple senior advisers, including Bannon, Priebus, and Hicks, said that the president had become unhappy with Flynn well before Flynn was forced to resign and that the president was frequently irritated with Flynn.
1: But the biggest reason that Mueller's evaluation of Trump's intent is complicated is that Mueller isn't positive whether or not Trump knew about Flynn's underlying conduct.
5: Some evidence suggests that the president knew about the existence and content of Flynn's calls when they occurred, but the evidence is inconclusive and could not be relied upon to establish the president's knowledge. Our investigation did not produce evidence that established that the president knew about Flynn's discussions of sanctions before the Justice Department notified the White House of those discussions in late January 2017. The evidence also does not establish that Flynn otherwise possessed information damaging to the president that would give the president a personal incentive to end the FBI's inquiry into Flynn's conduct.
1: This is one of the enduring mysteries of the Russia investigation. Was Flynn acting at the direction of the president when he made that call to Kislyak? And if so, was that part of the reason he lied to investigators? Here's Shane Harris.
4: This is still something we don't know. And is kind of a bedeviling question to me because, you know, if it's it's Donald Trump directing Mike Flynn, go tell the Russians this is what we're going to do, then it is something... More significant perhaps than Mike Flynn just sort of freelancing it, but it would also explain why Mike Flynn lied to the FBI about it. The first inkling that we got about what Mike Flynn was talking about it was uh, it was a column by uh, David Ignatius at The Washington Post, relaying according to an anonymous official the contents of this call, and raising the specter that this could violate the Logan Act, which is this act. That is not a thing. (laughs) It's never been used successfully. I don't think it's ever been used at all, really, to prosecute someone for engaging in foreign policy as a non-government official, freelancing in your private capacity in foreign policy. And, you know, did Michael Flynn suddenly think, oh, my God, I'm going to be indicted for the Logan Act, I have to lie? That seems really implausible to me. So the question has always been, why did he lie about this? Why not just say, yeah, I talked to Sergei Kislyak and told him we'd appreciate if you don't hold off on the sanctions. No one was going to indict the incoming national security advisor for having a conversation about national security issues with the Russian ambassador. That just wasn't going to happen. Did Michael Flynn get confused? Did he get nervous? We don't know. So this is why the question has always been so um, urgent in my mind, which is that you know if, if he did this because Donald Trump told him go out and do it and he thought, geez, it's going to look like... This is just fulfilling the narrative of the president's critics that he's somehow trying to do solids for the Russians and he's in league with the Russians, then I'll lie about it. We just don't know.
1: While Mueller says specifically that he could not establish what the president knew, the report offers a number of reasons to believe Trump was, at a minimum, aware of Flynn's calls with Kislyak at the time. Recall that while Flynn was in the Dominican Republic, Trump was at Mar-a-Lago with advisors, including KT McFarland.
4: KT McFarland is aware that Mike Flynn in December is having these conversations with Kislyak, and she's sort of acting as the go-between talking to Flynn and then talking with other transition officials. They're going back and forth. uh, And so obviously KT McFarland would be somebody you would think would know exactly what Mike Flynn was saying to the Russian government.
1: If McFarlane knows what Flynn is saying to the Russian ambassador, and she's with Trump at Mar-a-Lago and briefing him on sanctions and possible responses, then the big question becomes whether McFarlane told Trump about Flynn's call. But according to the Mueller report, neither McFarlane nor anyone else who was at those meetings with Trump claims to remember whether or not the president-elect was told.
5: McFarland met with the president-elect and senior officials and briefed them on the sanctions and Russia's possible responses. Incoming chief of staff Reince Priebus recalled that McFarland may have mentioned at the meeting that the sanctions situation could be cooled down and not escalated. McFarland recalled that at the end of the meeting, someone may have mentioned to the president-elect that Flynn was speaking to the Russian ambassador that evening. Priebus thought it was possible that McFarland had mentioned Flynn's scheduled call with Kislyak at this meeting, but was uncertain. McFarland did not recall any response by the president-elect.
1: This is important because Trump does something else the week Flynn resigns and he tells Comey to let him go. Another thing that Mueller evaluates for possible obstruction. As of February 13th, Flynn is out as national security advisor, and it's clear that McFarland isn't going to remain as deputy either. A week after Flynn's departure, Reince Priebus and Steve Bannon tell McFarland that the president wants her resignation. But they suggest that he'll make her ambassador to Singapore instead.
4: This is going to sort of be the consolation prize. After she, you know, flames out as deputy national security advisor, the administration wants to make her ambassador to Singapore. Great post, by the way. Most people love Singapore. And, 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 a, and a consequential one, it should be said, too. I mean, this is a very important ally, Singapore, while a small country is of, you know, major strategic significance um, in that part of the world.
1: The day after Bannon and Priebus inform McFarlane that she's out as deputy national security advisor, but in the running for a cushy ambassadorship, the president requests that McFarlane draft an internal email saying that the president hadn't directed Flynn to call the Russian ambassador about sanctions. Priebus reaches out to her with the request.
5: McFarland told Priebus she did not know whether the president had directed Flynn to talk to Kislyak about sanctions, and she declined to say yes or no to the request. Priebus understood that McFarland was not comfortable with the president's request, and he recommended that she talk to attorneys in the White House counsel's office.
1: McFarland goes to John Eisenberg, the legal advisor to the National Security Council, to say that she's been fired as deputy national security advisor and offered the ambassadorship in Singapore, but that the president wants a letter from her denying that he directed Flynn to discuss sanctions with Kislyak.
5: Eisenberg advised McFarland not to write the requested letter. McFarland wrote a contemporaneous memorandum for the record because she was concerned by the president's request. In it, she writes, quote, Eisenberg thought the requested email and letter would be a bad idea from my side because the email would be awkward. Why would I be emailing Priebus to make a statement for the record? but it would also be a bad idea for the president because it looked as if my ambassadorial appointment was in some way a quid pro quo, unquote. Later that evening, Priebus stopped by McFarlane's office and told her not to write the email and to forget he even mentioned it.
1: Mueller notes that the president's actions here are highly suspicious, but the evidence doesn't establish that the president actually directed McFarlane to lie.
5: The president's efforts to have McFarland write an internal email denying that the president had directed Flynn to discuss sanctions with Kislyak highlights the president's concern about being associated with Flynn's conduct. The evidence does not establish that the president was trying to have McFarland lie. The president's request, however, was sufficiently irregular that McFarland felt the need to draft an internal memorandum documenting the president's request
3: mike was doing his job he was calling countries and his counterparts
2: we were concerned that the american people had been misled
3: so it certainly would have been okay with me if he did it i would have directed him to do it if i thought he wasn't doing it I didn't direct him, but I would have directed him because that's his job. We
2: weren't the only ones that knew all of this.
3: They did not
5: discuss anything having to do with expel diplomats or, or uh, impose a censure against Russia. The
2: Russians also knew about what General Flynn had done. I can't reveal what the White House knew or didn't know and who in the White House knew or didn't know. Every time this lie was repeated, it increased the compromise.
3: I said, I don't think he did anything wrong. If anything, he did something right. He was just doing his job. That was very normal.
2: To state the obvious, you don't want your national security
1: advisor compromised with the Russians. So where does that leave us? Trump is now the president, and he's learning quickly that getting rid of the questions about Russia isn't going to be easy. Flynn's in hot water, and the president might be implicated as well. So he tries to make nice with Comey. He wants to see if Comey is willing to pledge personal loyalty to him. But Comey won't play ball. So Trump ramps up the pressure, telling him to let Flynn go. And he tries to get Katie McFarlane to create a record, saying Trump didn't know about Flynn's call. A record she isn't willing to write. It's a chaotic and confusing time at the White House. And the brand-new administration is still facing serious questions about their campaign's involvement in election meddling. Less than three weeks in, and the Russia scandal has already claimed a key member of the White House staff. And it's becoming clear that the FBI isn't about to drop it. The president and the director of the FBI on a collision course.
0: Good evening, and it's great to have you with us here on a Tuesday night, and we begin with that bombshell from the White House late today. FBI Director James Comey fired by President Trump. It came without warning.
1: That story is next time on The Report. Thank you for listening to Part 9 of The Report. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and the Democracy Fund. To support this project, please go to lawfareblog.com. The report is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. Ian Enright is the executive producer. Production assistance from Char Dreyer. From the Lawfare team, the project is led by executive editor Susan Hennessy. Editor-in-chief is Benjamin Wittes. Interviews conducted by managing editor Quinta Jurassic. Recordings by Michaela Fogel and Jacob Schultz. Additional assistance by Eugenia Lostry and Gordon All. Special thanks to Shane Harris, Greg Miller, Preet Bharara, and you, the listening audience. To support this show, please share this podcast wherever you can. And while you're at it, please subscribe and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen. Our website, lawfareblog.com, is where you can learn more about lawfare, read our work, and support our mission. Until next time.
4: You're listening to Goat Rodeo.
0: Keep an ear out for us. Hey, it's
4: Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.